We are in Psalm 23 this morning. Message entitled, The Good Shepherd. Jesus said in John 10, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays his life down for the sheep. And I know them. And my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. Father, we thank you for your love for us or giving us the word of God that we might have a lamp for our feet and a light for our path and the Holy Spirit that we might have understanding that you might convict us and then give us grace that we might be found obedient. Lord Jesus, thank you for being the shepherd that laid his life down for the sheep that we might know you Lord, this morning I pray that I might be spirit-filled, that the message would be from you to your flock, that we might be fed and challenged, and that, Lord, if there's someone here that does not know you, that you would draw them to yourself by the gospel this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Probably the most familiar of all the Psalms, when I was in the Presence Honor Guard, we did funerals every day of the week, uh, during the work week, and this is probably the most quoted, the most read psalm, especially at funerals. There's so much here, but everything is actually contained in the first verse. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The rest of the psalm just delineates what the first line means. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. My cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. What an amazing statement. The Lord is my shepherd. That he belongs to you because you belong to him. You're part of his flock. You say that this morning? One day there will be false professors that stand before him, and they will hear the saddest words any human being can hear. Depart from me, worker of iniquity. I never knew you. It's not that in God's sovereignty and his omniscience, he doesn't know who they are. But he does not know them as family. They are not part of his flock. And only his flock, only those whose names are written down in the Lamb's book of life, will spend eternity with him. The Lord is my shepherd. It's not generic. It's not just a doctrinal statement. It's relationship. You see, there's another shepherd, and he is the shepherd of the children of disobedience. And this morning, you belong to one shepherd or the other. Ephesians 2 says, and we were all born in sin. And the only one we listened to in our natural state was the prince and the power of the air who is over the children of disobedience. And while they think they have liberty and they have freedom, they do not. They are slaves to sin. 
And Jesus said about that shepherd that he is a liar and a murderer from the very beginning. And he draws people to death. But if you come to know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you can say the Lord is my shepherd. I like the way it says in the Spanish Bible, El Señor es mi pastor. The Lord is my pastor. That's what shepherd means. Those words are interchangeable. It's so personal. Any pastors that teach God's word, elders in churches, our shepherds, our pastors, we are just under shepherds. When Peter was writing his last epistle, he wrote to pastors, the under shepherds, and he said, shepherd the flock of God. Any flock that belongs to Jesus Christ, any church that is based upon the word of God does not belong to the pastor or to the people. The flock belongs to God. And together we say, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Now the next couple of lines talk about God's drawing us to himself. You know, before you were even a believer, God was leading you. God set his affection upon you. And God is always proficient in those he has set his affection upon. We read in Ephesians, we read in Romans 8, that before the world began, he saw those who would be his own, and he worked in your life to draw you to himself. Did you make a choice? Yes, you made a choice. It says in John chapter 6, verse 45, all that hear, the word's gone out to everyone, but those who hear, those who listen to God's word, follow him. It says, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me be quiet beside quiet waters. The Bible says in Romans chapter 2, in Romans you have kind of a basic outline. In chapter 1 you have the introduction that goes through verse 16 that says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of God because it is the power of God unto salvation. Then he begins his teaching on the doctrine of salvation. And he says, pagans are lost without Christ. But then in chapter 2, he says, moral and religious people are lost without Christ. And there's that verse in there that he talks to moral people. People that maybe have religion, but they don't have God. They don't belong to him. There's no personal relationship. He says, and don't you know, oh man, that is the goodness of God that leads you to repentance? That's what I think this part is talking about right here. Now, your still waters may be a, have been a hospital bed where God got your attention. It may have been in church. It may have been in a hotel room where you finally opened a Gideon's Bible and you read the gospel. It could have been a friend that was witnessing to you. Somebody that was inviting you to church. It may have been Stillwater Prison when God finally got your attention and you realize that the only hope for your life was the good shepherd who laid his life down for you. Because the next line says, he restores my soul. We just read that restoration of soul in Psalm 19, the last chapter last week we looked at. Verse 7, it says, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. But it's a wonderful thing to look back in your life 
And some of us do sometimes in fear and say, what if I wouldn't have listened to my friend that last time? He inv- I told him before, I don't want to hear about your God anymore. And, and, and yet he asked you one more time and you responded. Or you hadn't lived through that accident or through that disease. But Paul gives us affirmation. He wants his flock to be secure. And in Romans chapter 8, he says, those he predestined, Bible word, those he also called, those he called, he also justified, those he justifies, he will also glorify. Then he asked the question, what should we say to these things? Why did God tell us that? So that you might understand that if God is for you, who can be against you? He who did not spare his only begotten son for you, so that if you were the only one that were to respond to Jesus died personally for you on that cross. It says in Isaiah 53, he saw those that he would win by the suffering of his son, so it pleased the father to crush the son. Jesus laid his life down for you. And the Bible says, who for the joy that was set before him? Who's the joy? That's you and I. Isn't that amazing? When you see what kind of people we are, what kind of flock we are. He laid his life down for us. Who for the joy that was set before him. Despised the shame. He endured the cross. But now is glorified. as set down at the right hand of the father. He restores our soul. Some of you may be there right now. You haven't quite trusted the Lord. And you're wrestling with these ideas. It's okay. You wrestle. You wrestle, but don't be one of those that is ever learning and never, never, never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. There comes a time when you have to make a decision and trust Christ. And I want to tell you, you can trust him. The Bible says in Romans chapter 10, 13, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And the Bible said in verse 11, all that trusted will never be disappointed in the good shepherd. He'll never be disappointed. But not only give you life that you never want, but he also gave you purpose. Now that he's restored your soul, he leads you in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. His namesake, not yours. We we hear a lot today about this uh, man-centered gospel that Jesus wants to give you a better life and you can have your best life now. That's a lie. Our best life is going to be with him in glory. We have an amazing opportunity right now as we follow him. He leads us in the paths of righteousness. Remember, we, read, we just quoted this morning John 10. He said, My sheep hear my voice and they follow me. They follow me. Where's he leading us? In the paths of righteousness. We live in an American Christianity that has a lot to do with it, thinking, Well, you said the prayer, you're in. Now, do what you want to do, and God will always forgive your sin. So just kind of live your life because God has joined you. There was a little slogan when I joined the army, and it said, let the army, army join you. I never experienced that army. No, they didn't ask me anything. They only told me stuff. Told me when to get up, where to go, what to wear, how long to work, when to get off. 
they, they even retaught us how to brush our teeth and all the basic things in life that you thought you understood. No, the army did not join me. I don't know who came up with that slogan. It must have been a politician because it was a lie. And Jesus is not looking to join you in your sinful life. And the Bible says in 1 Timothy 2.19, let all who name the name of Christ depart from iniquity. There's not this, hey, well, I'm a Christian. I know where I'm going, so it doesn't matter if I sleep around or if I'm a drunk or if I'm involved in pornography or whatever I do because I'm saved now. A lot of Armenians that have a good case is they look at some so-called Christians and say, well, they say they said the prayer. Now it doesn't matter if they live a sinful lifestyle. Jesus has saved you from your sin to walk in holiness. Do you still sin? Yes, of course you still sin. The Bible says if you say you have no sin, you're a liar and the truth is not in you. But the difference is you have a new conviction of sin. You can't live the lifestyle of sin, 1 John 3, any longer. Remember that there's a movie came out a long time ago about the Walmart baby. I can't remember the name of it, but we watched it. It was a true story about a girl that got abandoned by her boyfriend and she was left in Walmart. So she just kind of hid out there for a while until she had a baby. And then the whole community kind of came around her and they loved on her, provided a place. But the lady that took her in was the Christian in the movie. And yet she had a live-in boyfriend. But then every time they slept together, she's so sorry, God, for that. That is the attitude of so many believers today. Well, Jesus died for my sin. And they kind of take the opposite of what Paul intended in Romans chapter 6. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? What does he say? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin continue to live in it? He saved us for a purpose. That was to glorify him. He leads us in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake, not ours. And as you walk in those paths of righteousness, you walk in fellowship with him. It's quite an adventure. There are going to be times when you do fall into sin, when you stray, and those are hard times. There's some times when he's leading you, not because of your sin, but just that you might be disciplined through very difficult tests. And like in Pilgrim's Progress, Satan whispers in your ear, there's bypath meadow. That looks much smoother. And so you step over the fence because you think you found an easier way than walking the paths of righteousness. And it'll it'll end up in the same place. And pretty soon you end up in dungeon of despair. But even there, you remember that he's promised to never leave you nor forsake you. And Christian remembered, I have the key that locks every door of every prison of sin, and that is hope. But where did the Lord bring them back to? Right where they left the path. He is so good. Because he wants us to trust in him. Not our own way. He leads us through personal crisis, through relationship crisis, sometimes through financial crisis. So that we will learn to stop looking at the circumstances and look wholly at the shepherd. Remember in John 22, when Jesus had gone to meet the disciples because they'd all gone fishing, they felt like failures. They said, well, we know one thing, fishing. Obviously, God can't use us anymore. The Lord can't use us. And Jesus finds them. And he comes to the shore of Galilee. He says, hey, children, have you caught any fish? 
Now, what wiseacre stands on the, sh- the, the, the shore and hollers that out? When they haven't, how do you take that when you haven't caught all fish and any fish, you've fished all night? And I don't know what happened in their heart, but all of a sudden they, they said, oh, that's the Lord. Who asks a question like that? Have you caught any fish? Cast your net on the other side of the boat. Yeah, that, that's where the fish are, just on the other side of the boat. And that's when they recognize that's the Lord. So Peter swims to shore. The rest of them had this big catch they bring to shore. And Jesus already had fish baking on the coals. And he asked Peter, do you love me? Peter was hurt because he knew he was a failure. He said, feed my lamb, shepherd my flock. He asked him a third time, do you love me? And Peter looks around and he says, what about that guy? John, he left too. He said, you know, Peter, you're going to be serve me so faithfully one day, you're going to be carried and crucified in the cross. Well, Peter said, what? That's what faithfulness gets you? What about John? And Jesus said to Peter, if he lives until I come again, that's none of your business. You follow me. That's the amazing part of the adventure. It's not rocket science. It's very simple. Follow the shepherd. We have an example of that in the Old Testament, don't we? The Shekinah glory of God came down over the tabernacle, and at night it was a pillar of fire. It was right there. The, the, the glory of God was right there in the tabernacle. The tents of the children of Israel were set up an organization around the central tabernacle. In the daytime, it was a pillar of cloud. And the instruction was simple. When the cloud lifted up, you pack up your tent and follow the cloud. When the cloud comes to rest, you set up your camp and that's where you stay. Nowhere in scripture is found that you've got to get a big idea and God's waiting on you to have a big, great faith idea so you can do something for him. He said, no, you follow me. Follow me. Follow the shepherd. Simple, but not easy. In the following of the shepherd, you may follow him through the valley of the shadow of death. You don't have to live very long when you experience that. It may not be your own death. It may be a loved one. As I was reading Spurgeon, he said, the thing we need to remember about a shadow, the shadow of a dog can't bite, the shadow of a sword can't kill, and the shadow of death cannot harm. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 15, death, where's your sting? Grave, where's your victory? The sting of death is sin, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory in our Lord Jesus Christ. Our shepherd has already gone through death for us. We sing at Easter time, up from the grave he arose. In that, there's a phrase that says, he tore the bars away of death. He ripped out the sting. And he gave us that information there in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that if this tabernacle, just this tent, this temporary dwelling, is torn down, we have a permanent dwelling waiting in glory. So he said, understand something. To be absent from the body as a believer is to be present with the Lord. What does that give you? Courage. 
And the reason those truths resonate when you come to death is because the grace of God ministers to his children and you know his word. You know his promises. The good shepherd always fulfills his promise. Even though the adventure of your life leads to the valley shadow of death, you need fear no evil. Why? Because the shepherd is with you. He promised in Hebrews 13, I will never leave you nor forsake you. What a blessing it is to watch a believer who's following the Lord go to be with him in heaven. Our friend Ray Weaver, when we went to be with the Lord, was just excited about the next step. So excited that he went to sleep one night, woke up the next day in the hospital and said, hey, what is going on? Because he was ready to be with the Lord. Death is not our friend. Death is an enemy of the soul. And one day, God's going to cast death and hell into the lake of fire. But it's an enemy that's lost his sting to believers. We don't have to be afraid. Because the Lord has been there. He's been all the way through the other side. And he leads us every step of the way. And his grace ministers comfort and strength that the world knows nothing about. It's not you having a positive uh, attitude or, or hoping real hard or really uh, working up some, some tough feelings inside. It's his grace that's ministered to you that turns the dials of fear and grief to joy. And he gives you confidence. Why? It says, because his rod and his staff they comfort you. That's security. The rod is for protection, and the staff is for discipline. My dad used to teach as a pastor, you want your children to have confidence, they need your discipline. They will not know that you love them unless you bring godly discipline to their life. The Bible says in Hebrews 12 that he disciplines every son he receives. So if you're without discipline, then you're illegitimate. If you can just run around and sin, and God does not personally discipline you in your life, then you don't belong to him. One day he will judge Satan's children, but he does not discipline them. And he does not judge his children, his own children. Their sin's been judged on the cross, but he disciplines us so we don't play in the streets of the world and get run over by sin. Sin may not take your eternal life away, but it can damage your potential in this life and your glory and your reward in the next. And God doesn't want that for you. And so he brings discipline. Do you really belong to him? That you can't just sleep around and carry on and do whatever you want and get away with it? If you can, you've just got religion. You have no relationship. And he's not your shepherd if there's no relationship. And so the rod is protection. You see, the job of a shepherd is to feed, lead, and protect. A good shepherd knows the pastures that he's in. He knows where the poison weeds are. And he can smell a wolf before he can see them. And good shepherds are weaponized to deal with the wolf. So the rod is the protection of the flock, but the staff is the discipline of the flock. 
And you will be comforted and you'll be secure because of God's discipline in your life. That's why Paul said, even in the trials, it's not just our salvation we glory in, Romans chapter 5. We glory also in the trials because in the trials we learn patience and we have experience of God showing up in our life. And experience gives hope because God's been there before. He's going to be there again. And hope makes not ashamed because it's in those trials that we see God work. And the love of God is spread abroad in our heart by the Holy Spirit that's given unto us. And that comforts us. If we would never have a trial, how would you know what God is like? Henry Blackaby said, we know God by our walk, by our experience with him. So it's not just giving mental assent to doctrines or a doctrinal position it is a life of walking with the shepherd so that even in the shadow of death you fear no evil his rod and his staff they comfort you he anoints my head with oil the bible says in that adventure that he sets a banquet table before us in the presence of our enemies now most soldiers you were in the army. When I was in, we had C rations. Now they have something better, K rations. And uh, the C rations were just enough to get you by for a little bit. They were just very small. You'd carry them in your pack. Every once in a while, they'd bring out the cook to the field, and you got to eat a bigger meal. But look where the banquet table is. In the presence of the world. In the presence of the enemies. David was a warrior all of his life. He was a warrior king. And when we're at battle, we're often just grabbing a bite here and there, but the Bible says, no, our Lord, he sets a banquet table before us in the presence of our enemies. You see, when we follow the Lord, even with all the trials and the difficulties that are a part of this life, when we're walking with the Lord and we're serving him in the giftedness that he's blessed us with and that he saved us for, the purpose he saved us for, we begin to experience the joy and the grace that says all this and heaven too? See, when I get bitter in my own heart, that's not God's fault. That's nobody else's fault. That's my reaction to the situation, isn't it? It's my sin. If people get bitter, that's their choice to be bitter. Why do we get bitter? Because we think we're protecting ourselves. Because we're really saying, well, the Lord can't take care of me, so let me guard my own heart. I said, no, no. The Lord wants to set a banquet table before us in the presence of our enemies. So the world says, how do they have such peace? Who is that providing for them? Then he says, as the sheep follow the shepherd, surely goodness and mercy will follow the sheep. That's what David said. He's in that place of blessing. He's following the shepherd. He looks behind. He says, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. As we follow the shepherd, now, we don't get to run ahead of the shepherd. We run away from the shepherd. Goodness and mercy don't just follow us out there wherever we want to do. They're closer related to the obedient sheep following the shepherd. But as we follow the shepherd, we understand what's going on. 
That's why we go to him to get our head lifted. That's why we run to the rock to get our bearings back again. Lord, what are you doing? Why am I in this place right now? I don't understand what's going on, but see, the shepherd does because he's the one leading us. He knows where he's taking us. If we stay there, then goodness and mercy, there they are. Follow me all the days of my life and then the future. Something the world knows nothing about. That's why they have to live for the here and now. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Jesus knew that his disciples were afraid. So he said, don't be afraid. You trust in God, trust also in me. In my father's house are many dwelling places. And Dr. Bookman has told us that's Jewish wedding speech. Because what would happen in a Jewish family is a father would make a deal with another father for a young couple to come together and, and make their own family. And when that deal was made, there was an engagement. And that engagement was the same as a marriage. You had to get divorced. That's why Joseph was seeking to be divorced from the, the, the one he was betrothed to, Mary, Virgin Mary, because she was pregnant. So being a just man, he thought, I'll just do this quietly. I don't know what happened, but I'll put her away quietly. And the angel had to come to him and say, no, don't put him away. Don't be afraid to take her to be your wife because what's conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. But what a young man would do when the engagement was finalized, then he would go home and build a room on his father's house. How long is it going to take? I don't know. We know in construction that things get in the way, don't they? We think it's only going to take this long, but sometimes things happen. And so we're, we don't get done like we think it should. And the bride was just ready. She was just waiting. She had to be prepared. And there's a picture of the bridegroom coming for us as the church one day. We have to be prepared. But when it was finally finished, the father would inspect the room and say, now, son, go get your bride. And with joy in his heart and with all of his friends, they'd go to her house and they'd take the bride and there'd be a party all the way back to the father's house and sometimes a celebration for a week. And Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. A place for you. Who knows you like the good shepherd? What a place of security. He set his affection on you and he was going to gain you no matter what. And he's prepared a place. Some people have said, and I've heard in Bible studies, been a part of Bible studies, say, well, you know, heaven is just the best thing that you can think of. You know, just your imagination. Said, no, that's absolutely false. Why? Because you have a fallen uh, imagination. You can't imagine. You don't think like God. We, his ways are higher than our ways. Our thought, his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. We can't imagine what heaven's going to be like. We can see the descriptions, and even that, we're going to go, oh. When you think about the wheel and the wheel and the eyes and all the things flashing around and the rainbow around the throne, we go, wow, that just sounds amazing, but I can't imagine what that's like exactly. But the good shepherd has promised he's going to prepare a place just for you. You're not going to be lost in heaven. You're not going to be wandering around looking for your place. When Stephen was being stoned, he looked up just before he died and he said, I see Jesus standing at the Father's right hand. Oh, the Lord Jesus welcome you home.
Because the best thing about heaven is not the streets of gold and the beautiful pearl gates. The best thing about heaven is Jesus, the good shepherd. And you will dwell with him forever and ever. It's personal. It's not like, well, Jesus lives on the rich side of town, up on the hill. No, no. He's your shepherd. He'll welcome you personally. One day he's going to give you a name that nobody else knows but him and you. How personal you are to the shepherd. Do you belong to him? Do you know him? Can you say, the Lord is my shepherd? I shall not want. Father, we thank you for your love for us. Lord, no doubt as you lead us, many today may be going through difficult times in their life. Oh, Lord, lift their head. Anoint their head. Encourage their heart. Strengthen them for the journey that's left. That they might once again realize that even in the difficult times, you have prepared a banquet table before them. That as a part of your flock, we have no want. And any of the trials that we might experience, you know about. They've already passed through your hands. And they're for your glory And Lord, for our good, for our strengthening. But Lord, if there are any here that do not know you today, they have no shepherd protecting them. They belong to the prince of the power of the air. Oh Lord, draw them to yourself that they might escape the wrath to come. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's stand and sing together.